This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. This is How Do You Do That with Emily Tresseter on Joy 94.9, the show answering the questions you didn't even know you had. This week's guest is Paralympian, osteopath and keynote speaker, Jessica Gallagher. We talk about how her challenges and triumphs have allowed her to personally connect with so many different audiences, how special and rewarding that connection is for both Jess and the crowd. Plus, while she is an extremely successful elite athlete, it was also important for her to find other things in life to fuel her passion. When we all go through a challenging moment, we, you know, we think our world's over and that we're never going to get out of it. And over the years, because I've had so many experiences like that at the time, I, I just think the world is over. But it's incredible now that I can look back on those moments and realize that not only have they helped me immensely, but they can actually help other people as well, which is pretty amazing. Jessica Gallagher is a Paralympian who's won medals at both the Summer and Winter Paralympics. At 17, she was told she had a rare eye disease, cone dystrophy that led to her being legally blind. She's overcome so much and achieved so many phenomenal feats. She now uses her stories to motivate and connect with many different audiences all around the world. I asked Jessica why she thought keynote and motivational speaking is so important. I think it really puts you into another person's world. And we often hear people talk about you can't be what you can't see. And so I think for most people, it's really about being able to open their eyes to something new, something different. And sharing of experiences, really, I think my biggest role as a speaker is to create a human connection with another person. And so whether that's an audience of 1,500 people or a room of 10 people, it doesn't really matter. The the goal for me is the same. It's really about how do I create that connection with that person sitting in the in the crowd that I've never met before. I only know a little bit about them. How can I allow them to step into my world and experience the things that I am so that they can then go, oh, well, hold on a second. If this is sort of how she navigated this challenge or this circumstance, maybe I can take that and and bring it into my own world. So it's really about that human connection and emotion for me. Obviously, that is important to the audience. They do get that moment where they're like, oh, you know, I can take a bit of that into my life or I can take a bit of that into the way that I'm working in a certain situation. What is it about what you do that's really important to you personally? For me, 100%, it's that finding that connection with another person. At the start of my Paralympic career, I never could truly understand how you could have impact on another person's life just through my actions. You know, often as a Paralympian, we're called inspiring because we we help other people see that they can do things that perhaps others might have thought wasn't possible. And for me, it's the same space as a speaker. And, and now I'm really proud to feel that way where I can share my story and share some of those lessons that I've learned and give someone else the courage to be able to take that lesson and put it into their own world. So it's it's so empowering and it's a really humbling experience. One of my favorite things to do after a speech is to go and meet the audience afterwards and and really be able to have those one-on-one conversations and to be able to connect with people in that intimate moment and learn, you know, what part of my speech has really resonated with them? Where have they connected and how are they going to take it into their own world? I think it really opens up some incredible conversations and and it really gives you that insight into another person's world, which I think is really special. 
When you're speaking, what are your speeches about? <laughs> I uh, customize them to each of my clients. So whilst my story is obviously concrete, one of the things that I love the most about speaking is every audience is so different from different industries, different backgrounds of people. Everyone has a different story. And so I will customize different parts of the topics that I'm speaking about within the stories that I've of my experiences over the years, most in relation to being a Paralympic athlete and some of the experiences I've had. Some of the more extreme ones in particular is a ski racer who is vision impaired. Jess caters her speeches for each group using the experiences she thinks will have particular impact on particular audiences. I asked her what kind of group she talks to. So it's anyone really in the corporate space. So it could be big banks, telcos, food and beverage industries. It could be small businesses, pretty much anyone who's looking for someone to come in and help inspire or motivate their team. So over the years, I've faced so many different experiences being a summer and a winter athlete. And so, you know, there are lots of topics from things like resilience to overcoming challenges, adversity, building courage, being able to accept and and embrace fear. So there's lots of different things that I've experienced over the years that I use my experiences to help hopefully open the space so that the audience can interpret it in the way that they may need to in that moment in time for them. And so that's why I have briefing calls with clients and I really do a bit of a deep dive into who the particular audience is and perhaps, you know, what challenges they're going through at the moment and really, you know, where they're trying to go in their own space and so that I can try and draw that synergy and parallel between the crazy world that I come from. But by the way that I present and share those stories, hopefully it allows the audience to take a step into it and pick the little bits that are going to help them the most. Earlier, Jess mentioned that her speeches do move people. So much so that often audience members talk to her afterwards about how moved they were. Can Jess think of any particular moments or memories like this that have validated why she does what she does? Yeah, absolutely. It is really special. Do you have a specific memory of of someone specific coming with a moment that really touched you and really kind of validated what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's always um, moments where people will come up and want to give you a hug or I've had people coming up crying because, you know, they have a family member perhaps with a disability or I've had people come up to me going through significant things like cancer who have been able to really connect with something that is, you know, one of my stories which is so vastly different to what they're going through and they come up to me and say, look, I've, I found that so inspiring and so courageous how you've been able to navigate through these different circumstances and that's really shown me that if I just keep believing and and working through my challenges that I can get there as well. So there are plenty of times when, you know, I'm left just in tears. It constantly amazes me how I can have that sort of impact on someone else. And and that's why I I absolutely love it because it's it's just as inspiring to me because I get to hear, you know, depending on how many people in the audience, I get to hear hundreds and hundreds of different people's worlds and get an insight into what they do. Jess and I have spoken a lot about the connective power of her speeches and how they can really touch and inspire others. Considering that she can often be in rooms with hundreds of people, how does she connect to the individuals in the room? I think me being real and honest is what makes it personal because it it allows that space because I'm vulnerable in sharing the stories and the experiences. So one of the key stories that I will often talk about because it, it seems to resonate with people and have such a big impact is it's not often the stories where I've had success that actually resonate the most. It's the times where I've had my, my deepest challenges and, and really overcoming significant things like fear. One of the main stories that I, I speak on is from the 2010 Vancouver 
Winter Paralympics, which was my first Winter Paralympics. And as a vision impaired ski racer, I ski with a guide. And so he will ski seven to 10 meters in front of me. We wear earpieces inside of our helmets and a little microphone in front of our mouth so that we can communicate. And we will hit speeds of over 100 kilometers an hour. So it's pretty full Ooh, on. That's a lot. And so there are many, many occasions where I'm, you know, on the edge and experiencing fear in a moment by moment environment. And so those are the moments where people really can feel that because I, I recall the moments where things go wrong and where, you know, there are crashes or we have technology failures and I lose the ability not only to see my guide, but to hear my guide. And I really share those moments where everything went wrong and how do I get from that place to where it is I'm trying to go. And so for me, by being honest and and really authentic in the story that I'm sharing, it, it allows that space for an audience member to come in because they can feel that through the tone of my voice and hopefully through my physical appearance and then have some pretty incredible footage, which I play the audience, which really can showcase them and put them into my world as a vision impaired athlete, skiing down a mountain at high speeds where they get to hear my guide talking to me. They see what I see, oh. which is often something that's really challenging because I have an invisible disability. And so a lot of people find it difficult to connect with how low my eyesight really is. And so all of those different elements really help connect the audience to the story that I'm sharing and that really allows them to feel like they're in my own world and I suppose that's a real professional speaking there's the science behind how to create emotion and connection but there's also the art behind it and over the years that's hopefully what I've been able to develop in getting that personal connection with the different members in the audience. Here Jess talks more about these connections and how audiences sense disingenuousness when we're talking about that connection, if you're on a giant stage and it's just you, people will read and assess you instantly. So if you're not being like the true version of yourself, people will know straight away. Because if you it's just you on this 20-metre stage in this big auditorium and you start talking, people will instantly know whether or not you're telling the truth, whether or not you know what you're talking about, whether or not it's coming from your heart or whether or not you're just pretending to be someone you're not. And so that's the real power of fantastic speakers and the difference between fantastic speakers and good speakers is that when you see them on stage you get this feeling there's almost this presence that that person will have and that's the openness that you're trying to crave from the audience is that can I can I be that presence and give them that power so that they can feel that from me because there's so much space for them you know if there's at 1500 people in a room and they're there for an hour to listen to you like it's an incredible privilege to have people give up their time and to dedicate their time to you to listen to what you have to say, especially these days because we're just so time poor. And so if you're up there and all these eyes are there staring at you, one of the good things about being vision impaired is I usually can't see them. Amazing. (laughs) So that's always nice. I don't have to picture them (laughs) naked. But the, the power is in that moment because there's a lot of, a lot of space in a one hour presentation for someone to lose that connection. And so that's why the power of a phenomenal speaker is so special because they can hold that presence and hold that power and keep that connection. And for me as a speaker, that's what I'm always aspiring to achieve in a presentation. And some audiences are harder than others, some groups are harder than others. And so by being able to you know, read a room and read that audience, that's where the, the real power is. But, you know, if you think about standing on a stage for an hour, you think a lot of things about that person on the stage. And so you want to be able to create that connection with each of those audience members without them feeling a negative emotion that might challenge their thoughts on what you're saying. 
I asked Jess how she thought audiences could sense this lack of honesty. Oh, I think I'm not sure exactly what it is. I think there's a combination of things like body language, posture, how they present themselves, how they carry themselves, how they walk around a stage. Do they appear nervous? You know, those sorts of things when you're standing on a big stage are pretty obvious to the eye. So something as simple as I would never stand behind a lectern because that automatically will block an audience, but block, put a block between you and the audience. And so I'm always moving around the room trying to create the different connections because there are people looking at you from different angles and different spaces. So there is a lot of science, I suppose, around how do you keep that space filled when Mm. you're this, I'm quite a tall person, but when you're this small person on this giant stage. So I'm not sure if it's a particular thing as opposed to more lots of really small considered elements. So something probably no one would ever realize unless I specifically said it is that when I'm on stage, I will always wear a bright color. So most stages have a black or a navy blue background. Mm -hmm. And so if I was to wear black or navy blue, I would blend into that background. Whereas by wearing a bright, bold color, that immediately creates a sense of blockage where people can see me regardless of how far back they are they are sitting and they don't lose me in the space of the stage because I'm very distinctly different to what the stage looks like. So even something like wearing a bright yellow dress, the amount of comments that I get from people saying, oh, that dress just makes me so happy. You know, it's like the sometimes it's all those little things that totally. helps create that feeling. So it, it's not just the words that come out of your mouth, but it's your actions as well. And sometimes that can be, you know, the really simple, silly things like wearing a different color to what the stage is. <laughs> <laughs> Did you read about that or you just sort of thought about it? I think it all started from me perhaps wearing a black dress one day and then not realizing it until I got up on stage and went, oh, okay, well, this isn't any good. A friend sitting in and watching and saying, you know, I can't really see you very well. And I'm blonde, you know, I've got bright blonde hair, but I can't really see you very well. So it's it's generally come from an experience where I've done it myself and then on reflection have gone, oh, actually, it would probably work better if I did it differently. So usually those learnings come from having experienced it in with a a live event where I go, okay, I'm not going to do that one again. I'll put that little tip into the, the basket and remember to, to not do that next time. Jess has made small changes that greatly impact the way she's received on stage. I wondered how she came across the need for those changes. A lot of what Jess talks about in her speeches is overcoming adversity in both her life and her sporting career. I asked her whether she also faced some obstacles in her speeches. There's always little things that might go wrong. You know, if it's a live event, there might be tech issues. I, I guess the, the moments where things go wrong, I learn more about myself and the, the business that I'm growing. So if I'm on stage, it could be something like, because I am not able to read the screen, I need to know my content and my stories like nothing else because yeah. I don't have the ability to read the screen and, and reference it. Probably the virtual events have been the most challenging because there are, there are times when if I'm working with my, my AV guy, he may lose connection with the AV team wherever they might be and so you don't know whether or not with you speaking to a camera whether or not they can actually hear you or whether they can see you you know I've had mics sort of drop on my head or (laughs) you know live audiences where the the microphone doesn't work like all these just kind of little things I probably haven't had anything too substantial. Yeah. Everything's pretty pretty manageable. I suppose once you get to sort of the corporate circuit, it's run pretty intensely. So there's lots of checks in place and you know lots of things so that you don't have those kind of issues. Probably the worst was I had a video that wouldn't run and so you know I might spend a minute or two 
building up the, the connection into the video and talking about what it's about and what I want the audience to think about when they're watching it and and how I want them to feel, you know, how I want them to look at what I might be feeling in those moments and then the video doesn't run and you're like, oh, well, well it wasn't that important. I've just spent a, I've just spent a few minutes. really important. <laughs> just spent a few minutes building up saying how important it is and now it doesn't work so I'm going to pretend as though it's not important. <laughs> They're probably the ones that are the hardest. But these days, you know, it only needs to happen once and I'm straight on to it and like, you know, in the pre, pre-testing beforehand, I'm like, check the video. No, check it again. Check it again. <laughs> I just do not want any of that to to happen. So you sort of learn those little tips and tricks. Jessica Gallagher has trained incredibly hard to qualify and compete at numerous Paralympics. She also grows and learns as a speaker each and every time she goes on stage. I needed to know whether she thought her training as an athlete influenced the way she went about speaking. Endurance or like anything (laughs) like that is, you know, like is is the physical endurance and strength and all of that does that sort of translate in any way or not really maybe they're kind of separate yeah maybe not the physicality um (laughs) you're not on stage doing any reps or anything any squats (laughs) or anything so probably it's a good question I don't think so I I think all of the skills that I've learned as a as an athlete organization and diligence and perseverance and working hard I think would help in any industry so I think as I've grown in my own business all of those things have really come into play just naturally I suppose you know you do spend a lot of time on the road traveling to well pre-COVID you spend a lot of time on the road now there's sort of more virtual events and you know international clients where I can do I'm speaking engagements at 12 30 in the morning to suit European time for an international client was a a new skill that I had to learn during COVID which was pretty uh, interesting and fun so I think all of the different parts of being an elite athlete have probably transpire I just if for me they're just natural so I'm not sure if, yeah. if they've helped or, or hindered. While it's yet to be determined whether her athleticism helps her keep her breath in her speeches, it is a fact that Jessica Gallagher is both a keynote speaker and an athlete. She is currently training for the next Paralympics, which we all hope will go ahead. And she's speaking via Zoom and where she can at the same time. Does she always want to be speaking and competing tandemly? At the moment, yes. It's something that I learned after the 2014, the the Russian Winter Paralympics. I came out of that experience in pretty much broken as an athlete. I experienced burnout. And whilst I medaled at those games, it was an incredibly difficult time. I experienced the loss of a teammate in a race crash. Uh, Pretty much everything that could have gone wrong did. And so in the lead up to those games, I'd spend so much time overseas traveling and training because that's what you need to do as a winter athlete. You know, there's only so much snow in Australia. So I had, you know, stopped speaking. I wasn't working as an osteopath. All of those other parts of me that are who I am. You know, I'm not just just the athlete. There are other elements to my life. Coming back from that experience, I realized that if something was going wrong in sport, that I didn't have an outlet or something that I was passionate about that I could go to. And so coming out of those games, I realized that I needed to bring back more perspective to my world and and have a bit more balance. And in the years since, the speaking business has grown substantially, and I'm at the point now where it's almost too much <laughs> um, which is a wonderful problem to have Absolutely. but it's it's a constant sort of juggle I would I would never call it balance because there is no balance Paralympic athletes don't tend to earn much money so it's important that I have a job so that I can do all the regular things and, and live my life and it's yeah it's I'm as passionate about speaking as I am about sport so it's a wonderful problem to have that I'm pretty time poor these days but it allows me 
the opportunity to pursue two things that I absolutely love. So totally, it'll still be there until I retire and then hopefully I'll move into sort of full-time speaking. Yeah. So that would be your transition, right? I would love to. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So realistically speaking, it's probably going to be a more long-term. I mean, yeah. he's hoping they're both really long-term, <laughs> but you know, like, yeah, even more long-term because yeah. I can imagine in terms of physical strength and endurance and all of the skills you need to be an Olympian, you would speech will probably last a lot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, I've been to five Paralympics. So I'm definitely on the mature end of the scale in terms of my sporting career so whilst I still love it I'll still be around as an athlete I've still got plenty to give but yeah it's it's been really important to me to have life outside of sports set up so that when I retire I can walk straight into a career and a business that's already flourishing it's quite common for athletes to really struggle in that transition because you go from dedicating your entire life to one thing mm-hmm. to not having that anymore so for me I've been really conscious of wanting to build up like I said the things going on in my life outside side of sport so that when I retire it's more seamless and I can walk into things that I'm already passionate about and are already established for me. So Jess does want to be competing and speaking as a joint career path. I wondered whether she always wanted to be both. Firstly did she always want to be an athlete? So I always wanted to represent Australia. I was your your typical sporty kid who played every sport and I just loved challenging myself and trying to be the best at something. So growing up, I played a lot of netball and basketball and it wasn't until I was 17 that I was diagnosed as legally blind. And so I think probably my desire to help people really stemmed from that diagnosis because I really saw the impact that others had on me in helping me come to terms with and understand what my life looked like now as somebody with low vision. And I've been legally blind for, gosh, 15 or 17 years now and I don't know everything about life as someone with low vision and mm-hmm. I'm in a privileged position to be able to give back and I'm an ambassador for Vision Australia. So, you know, for the past 10 or 11 years, I've been helping support others. And for me, it's about knowing that it could be just one little thing that someone says that makes a significant difference. And that was the experience that I had as that 17-year-old kid, having people provide me little bits of advice to help me, even if it's something as simple as crossing a road safely or, you know, not chopping my hand off in the kitchen (laughs) or, you know, the newest piece of adaptive technology, you know, all those little things can make such a big difference. And sometimes we don't realize how much of an impact they can actually have. But I'm also an osteopath. So I think that trying to help people and uh, helping people be the best version of themselves is probably something that has always been in me anyway. So she always wanted to connect and help people, but did she always know it would be through speaking? Did you ever see yourself doing anything like this when you were younger? Like you were playing sport, but were you also (laughs) like, maybe I could? Not at all. It wasn't until I won my first Paralympic medal in 2010 when people started asking me to share my story. In 2008 at the Beijing Summer Paralympics, that was due to be my first Paralympic Games. And unfortunately, I was deemed too sighted to compete. And so I was actually banned from the Paralympics. (laughs) And, um, And it was the most bizarre and ironic I don't even know how to explain it, circumstance when the the specialist, uh, when I was in Beijing in the athlete's village and he was consoling me because I was heartbroken that this sort of dream had been ripped away. He said that I was going to lose more of my sight because I have a deteriorating condition and I would lose it within six months. So I would be eventually eligible (laughs) for Paralympic competition. Really intense sort of difference between my Beijing experience in 2008 and then transitioning to winter sport and in 2010 winning my first 
first Paralympic medal. So I sort of those two stories connected, gathered a lot of interest and I had started off with, you know, local sporting clubs and not for profits and charities. And I just discovered that I really enjoyed it. I probably wasn't very good to start with, but I discovered that there was this professional speaking circuit in the corporate world and that you could, you know, do this on a bigger scale to bigger audiences and, you know, have a bigger impact. And so that was sort of when I started, I suppose, becoming more professional in it by developing intellectual property and learning how to tell stories and how to, you know, get the best out of my experiences so that I could help those in completely different industries. And that was probably one of the the more difficult parts when I was developing, I suppose, my career as a speaker is I have all these incredible stories and experiences that are really unique and bizarre. But how on earth do you actually connect that to someone who works in a bank or a law firm or in food and beverage? And so over the years, I've been able to develop that and really find that connection of how I can transport my world into someone else's world that is completely different. Jess and I have spoken a lot about the connection her speeches create, as well as the authenticity that is required to create that connection. She's telling people very personal stories. Is there a vulnerability to what she does? I definitely have that attachment to the stories. I wouldn't call it feeling, I I mean, I am vulnerable when I'm on stage, but I never feel concerned by it because it it literally is my experience. And so when it is coming and being told as a real lived experience, I take myself back to that moment so that I can feel those feelings of fear or anxiety or whatever it might be. And so it's just the experience I've been through. I don't have any, I have confidence in it because it's just my story. And so therefore I can never really get the story wrong because if I'm taking myself back to that moment, and I'm feeling those emotions that I felt in that moment in time, then it's a real experience. So I never really feel vulnerable, even though a lot of the stories I talk about, I'm sharing a lot of the vulnerabilities that I felt in trying to overcome challenges or obstacles. It was probably earlier on in my career where I, there were some stories where I could quite easily start crying through the loss of a friend or whatever it might be. And I have had a few moments earlier in my career where I've literally had to sort of stop and take check and think to myself, don't start, don't start crying. This is a a corporate space. (laughs) Crying is not going to help the circumstance because I'm trying to, while crying is absolutely fine, it's not helpful to getting some lessons across, I suppose. I think I'm not really sure. (laughs) I don't know. Probably more just self-awareness of like, I don't want to like run my mascara or anything. But um, there are a few times where, you know, if I'm talking about the connection that I have with my mum in the moment that we learned of my diagnosis and how traumatic it was for her, like that instantly I can feel the, the tears in the back of my mind whenever I talk about it, even now. I've had to sort of learn to be able to put a little, I don't even know what it is, but a, a, a check or a, an awareness that it's okay to feel this way because you can feel the emotion and the people will feel that emotion, but it's a part of a story and the story has ended really well because I know where I am now and I've learned so much from those moments. And so I suppose it's about rewriting the narrative in my mind about the fact of how traumatic it was at the time, but it's okay now. I've, I've navigated through that space and I can be proud and empowered by how those moments have created the person that I am. So it can be hard because sometimes you do stand up there and when you are feeling that emotion so real, it does 
make you feel like you're going to start having those moments. And some of the skiing moments where I talk about fear, I will literally feel myself start shaking when I rethink about some of those really, really tough moments where I was, you know, scared shitless of what was about to happen. But I don't mind that one as much, I suppose, because I just have to sort of create that check where I go, yeah, you're not actually in that moment. It's okay. It's all right. That is a credit to your speeches. So real and, like you said, true to the experience that it literally incites a similar feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, where it's really important to me that it it is my experience, it is my life, it's the things that I've been through, the lessons I've learned, and so they are all true and real and nobody can question them because they are my experience and so people may have different opinions or viewpoints or connect with it differently, but at the end of the day, it's my experience and what I went through and this is the way that it helped me and uh, these are the lessons that I learned through that moment and that's what I think is powerful for people I think especially as an athlete most people will often hear of the moments in time where I'm at my best where I've had my success and I will see the podium shots with the you know the fancy medals and the national anthem being played and this incredible achievement but that is often one minute in what has been a four-year journey or a 10 or a 20-year journey and so for me it's those other years and those other moments that are far more impactful than that one moment where everything right because I've been to five Paralympics and not one of those campaigns has ever has anything gone completely right for me so that's where the I think it's creating that narrative and showing people that just because you see the podium shot doesn't mean that there haven't been a whole lot of other stuff that goes on and I think sometimes people find that surprising of just how challenging some of those journeys can be it is interesting isn't it yeah. like you just wake up and you get a medal like, yeah. hey. you didn't do anything you know <laughs> it's fine <laughs> but where do you keep your medals <laughs> uh, they're in a plastic bag <laughs> Um, at home. They're in a plastic bag? <laughs> I know. Okay. It's terrible. So they, I often will bring one to the presentations. So I don't know if I'll be able to do that nowadays with COVID, but I used to take a medal so that during a question and answer time or, you know, meeting the audience afterwards time, people could have a look and take photos and those sorts of things. But that's where I... I love I love those moments because often people have never seen a Paralympic or Olympic medal before, and it's incredible to see that excitement when they see this you know, giant medal. So those moments are always fun. So that's why they're in plastic bags because they're often sort of in and out of a suitcase and things. But perhaps that won't be happening too much in the next twelve months. <laughs> they can just stay in the plastic <laughs> yeah, bag. You'll yeah. need them. We need one to day. Them. One day I'll I'll probably put them in a frame or something. I'm not sure. We'll see. It's sort of it's been a really interesting journey for me personally in understanding what a medal means to me I think as an athlete especially as a young athlete you crave the success and the ability to hold this thing in your hand and to show people and after my first games that was definitely me that I wanted to be like hey look at this medal isn't it incredible and then over the years I started realizing that the medal was yes it's this incredible thing but it's it's also just an object that's part of the journey and for me it's the thing that is most meaningful is the, the pathway to get to that end result, which might be that medal. The 2018 Commonwealth Games, my tandem pilot, Maddie and I, we finished in second place, but we actually weren't awarded medals. And that's a long story, but it was a real eye-opener to me in those moments of what am I here for? Am I here for that medal, which I feel like I should have been awarded, but I haven't been given? Or am I here for the other things? And that was a sort of the perfect summation to me at that moment in my career of realizing that yes I love the bullying and I love being able to show it to people but actually it's 
the experiences that I have achieving that performance, being able to put down my best performance in a high-pressure environment and achieve a result that actually means far more to me than the little reward, I suppose, the big reward that you get as a medal at the end. Jessica Gallagher has done a lot in her life, achieved a great deal, and overcome some of the most difficult obstacles. She not only talks to people about that in the hope that they will feel connected and inspired, but she also has grown and learnt within herself. Before we wrap up this episode, I wanted to know why Jess wants to be keynote speaking forever. I love it. I just, yeah, I love it too much, especially through COVID when you know, I haven't had a live event for 10 months. You just realise how much you love it and how much you miss it. And I think COVID has taught us that human connection is so important and so powerful and that it's really been missed. And so it's just as important for me as it is for the people sitting in the audience. And so I think until the moment comes where I don't have that excitement, that energy, it'll be there forever for me. And I knew when I first started as a speaker that it was something that I loved when I, I get the same feelings as I do on the start line of a Paralympics. So you get that same sort of yeah, like I, at, at the start line of a, a major event, I'll get that sort of calmness, but that inner sort of adrenaline rush and excitement and nerves, that sort of incredible bundle of crazy emotions that you feel. And I remember distinctly in one of my first events when I was more nervous than what I am these days. And I remember feeling that exact emotion. And I thought, oh, wow, like how this is crazy. Like this I must love this. And I still get that feeling now. It doesn't matter you know, however many years on I've been doing it um, before I step out on that stage and I you know, hear uh, music playing or I hear an introduction or something. I get those that feeling. So until that disappears, people will be stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to thank Jess Gallagher for being on the show. It was such a wonderful and inspiring chat. It's a testament to how much we can grow and learn in moments of struggle and adversity. Plus, how you can simultaneously pursue two or maybe three passions. If you'd like more info about Jess or how to get in touch about a function you'd like her to speak at, check out jessgallagher.com.au. Thanks for listening to another episode of How Do You Do That with Emily Tresseter. If you think you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, get in touch. Email howdoyoudothat at joy.org.au. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.